Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Back to Ashes, the Christmas edition. Tonight, I will be reading you Christmas horror stories set to the ambient sound of a crackling fireplace. Tuck in, get warm. Let's get started, shall we? Mrs. Delphine Smithers was an 83-year-old woman who lived by herself and her cat. Her husband had passed two years prior, and her children have since grown up and left the nest. But some Christmas time, and Mrs. Smithers gets her joy whenever her grandchildren paid a visit. She thought of the looks on their faces whenever she served them Christmas cookies and other pleasantries. This Christmas... She made some sweet and salty bark and kept it on the kitchen table. She found herself sitting in her favorite chair, knitting a scarf, where there came a sharp knock on the door. She jumped up a bit, not expecting any visitors at the moment. Can we come in? Smithers tentatively laid the scarf on the arm of the sofa and gripped the chair. Her frail bones popped and shifted. Getting up from the chair, Smithers collected her walking stick and trudged rigidly towards the front door. Another sharp knock rung out, that time more agitated than previously. I'm coming. Hold on. Smithers yelled. She grasped the doorknob and turned it counterclockwise. The door creaked open. On the other end of the door were two children. A boy and a girl. The boy appeared older, presumably around 13. He wore a denim hoodie and gray pants. He was holding the hand of an eight-year-old girl who was wearing a blue dress with white lace. For whatever reason, the children had their heads bowed, looking at their feet. The boy repeated his question. Can we come in? Smithers scratched her head. It was 10 p.m. Why would these children be at her house at that time of night? Somehow, the boy must have realized what she was thinking. 
We need to borrow your phone. My cell phone battery's dead. Smithers thought more about the suddenness of having these unexpected guests, but they were children regardless. At the very least, she could grant them this one request. She nodded her head, gesturing the two children in. Smithers directed them into the living room where her cat drone awake from the ruckus. When it set its eyes on the two mysterious children, the cat arched its back and hissed. Smithers walked over to silence her cat. Lex, these are our guests. Behave yourself. The cat meowed in defeat before running out of the living room and into the kitchen. The two children sat on the sofa, their eyes still hidden. Smithers went into the kitchen and pulled out the plate of sweet and salty bark. She returned to the living room and bent down to the children's high levels. Care for some sweets? The boy looked up. There was a reason as to why he was shielding his eyes. They were devoid of color or pupils. Nothing more than pitch black nothingness. Whatever he was, he assuredly was not of the earthly realm. The girl looked up as well. Her eyes matched the coal blackness of the other boy. And yet most bizarre, Smithers smiled at the children despite the hollow sockets that they call eyes. The children were speechless at first. They shared a puzzled glare. The girl waved her hand in front of Smithers' face, but Smithers didn't follow the path of it. They leaned in closer, realizing that Smithers' eyes were glazed over in a thin sheet of blue. She was blind. Smithers suddenly frowned. Oh, I'm sorry. You don't care for them? Uh, thank you the boy said. He took a piece of the sweet and salty bark and broke it in his hand before passing the girl a piece. Their heavy teeth ground down on the sweets. Oddness aside, the two children couldn't help but bask in the sweetness and saltiness of the snack. They indulged themselves in more of the sweets before getting up. They looked at the decorations with curiosity. On top of the fireplace on a stand was a small replica of the nativity scene. From her mental notes, she figured that the two children had stopped at the fireplace. Isn't it such a lovely display? She asked. Do you know the story of Christmas? We know about your Jesus, the boy responded. Our ancestors spoke a lot about them. Confused by his statement, Smithers nevertheless allowed the two children to further marvel at the Christmas decorations. The girl rustled the Christmas tree, causing the ornaments to fall on the ground. She ceased when she sensed Smithers getting upset. The two children played with the nutcrackers and listened to Christmas songs. The hours edged by slowly until a sudden electrical surge generated through the house. The two children looked at each other and back at Smithers. We have to go now. Our parents are here. Bright light shone through the windows. 
Outside was a spherical, smooth craft standing on three legs. A large, skinny-looking creature exited the craft and stood there at the door. The two children collected the plate of sweet and salty bark and exited the front door. There came a sound of a large whistle, as if there were a thousand steam engines situated outside. Within a flash, the craft was gone. Smithers called out for the two children, only to be met by a great silence. She closed the door and returned to her knitting. Twelve seems to be the age when kids start putting the heat on their parents about the truth behind Santa. I was certainly no exception to this rule. How were Santa's elves able to make that video game I wanted in their workshop? I thought Nintendo owned Mario. Or how about the ever-infamous visiting every house in one night question? Did the jolly man own some kind of time-extending device? Or perhaps the most obvious question of all, how could he have lived for this long? A lot of people say he trains apprentices who take his place every few decades. Others claim he's just immortal. As for everything else, magic seemed to be the universal lie everyone had agreed on. Whatever the case, I just went with the conclusion that it was my parents doing. Of course they deny it and claim ignorance if I confronted them, but it wasn't enough to dissuade my beliefs. So one Christmas Eve, when I couldn't sleep as these questions danced among my dreams of sugar cereals and new games. I decided to investigate the noises coming from my living room. This time, surely, I would catch my dad or mom in the act of stowing presents under the tree. At least then, they'd let me in on the truth. But as I entered the living room, I saw a man before me that I did not recognize. He was dressed in red and white, with a slightly overweight body and he wore a stringy, fake white beard. His hair, or what remained of it, was graying around the edges of his classic Santa hat, and his eyes were wide with fright as he dropped a present under the tree. Being the intuitive youth I was, I came to one of two conclusions. Either this was a home invader stealing my family's gifts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Or this was the real Santa. I opened my mouth to scream, but the man rushed toward me and covered my mouth. He said, putting a finger to his mouth, trying a smile. Tears began to roll down my cheeks. I was petrified of this man. Then, slowly, he took back his hand and extended it towards me. It's all right there, little one. You know who I am, right? I nodded, not shaking his hand back. The trembling man nodded as well, then grabbed an empty sack lying on the floor and gestured to the tree. Look, see, I bring gifts. Now, run along to bed, or I might have to put you on the naughty list. He started drifting towards the deeper, hearty voice stereotypically associated with Kris Kringle, but I wasn't fooled. Regardless, I wiped my eyes and began to step back from the living room, trying to create some distance between me and the stranger. The man simply watched, wiped his brow, and proceeded to approach the fireplace. I stopped and observed, confused as to how he was going to leave my house but a blast of green flames erupted from the chimney and the man fell back to the floor. I couldn't see his face, but I'm certain it was twisted in fear like my own. A massive bony hand spawned from the fire and the arm that followed was draped in raggedy fur. Then another arm and then The skull of some wild creature with two large horns followed, nearly as large as the fireplace itself. The bones popped and snapped as it slammed its hands onto the floor. The entire monster was engulfed in the flame, yet it did not seem to burn anything in the house. Eddie, the monster declared speaking to what I guessed to be the man on the floor. No, no, Eddie shouted back. I did my part, see? Ten thousand houses, just like you said, right? Ten thousand, I did my part. And yet you allowed a human child to see you. You know the rules. Look... I've learned my lesson. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Just let me go, please. I delivered all the... Let you go? Did you let that woman go, Eddie? I don't seem to recall you letting her go. This was your second chance, and you wasted it. What are you going to do? Eddie whispered. I could make out his quaking figure being overshadowed by the creature in the fireplace. 
The next sound to be heard was a crunch, with a soft beginning and snapping finish. I jumped as the sound repeated a few times, finally letting out a shaky breath. I prayed in my head that it wasn't what I thought, but when the creature reared its head towards me, I saw the red and white pants hanging from its mouth as it chewed on Eddie's corpse, then watched it slurp up his legs like strands of spaghetti. I covered my eyes and tried to tell myself it wasn't real. It wasn't real. It wasn't real. And after a quiet minute, I peeked between my fingers to see the monster staring back at me from the fireplace. The pace of my breathing grew quicker and sharper, my eyes unable to escape from the grasp of those eye sockets. Now, run off back to bed, little one, or else I might put you on the naughty list. My legs finally found the strength to leave and I sprinted for my parents' room, diving into the sheets with them. There wasn't a trace of the events of the night before when my family went down to the tree the next morning. There was even a little note next to an empty glass and a half-eaten cookie on the table. Have a Merry Christmas, S. Claus. As much as I had tried to take in the warm, comforting atmosphere that came with Christmas Day, I couldn't stop watching the fireplace, terrified that the monster would return. At the least, now I knew the truth about Santa Claus. It was a frosty Christmas evening. A psychopath lurked behind the shadows of the night. A cold blade held firmly within leathered palms, dripped with the fresh blood of its victims. Remembering the shrieks as each of their necks were perfectly sliced open. Their tender flesh stained red as it poured from the deep cuts the multiple stab wounds in each of their torsos. The little girl watched as her family was gutted before the Christmas tree and squealed. Why, Santa? Why? Only to have the man in the Santa outfit charge her down like a bull. The man paced slowly around the streets and grinned at the sinister thought of the crime he had committed less than an hour ago. With each passing window, he could see into the soul of the homes, the souls of the families, all the smirks and smiles from the parents allowing their children to open one present each and setting out milk and cookies for Santa, sickened him, yet reminded him of his own childhood. He could almost smell the pine needles that used to litter the tree skirt. He remembers being able to see his reflection on the multiple glistening ornaments that were passed down through each generation of his family. He remembers that night when his parents were bound to the couch 
and gagged as his six-year-old eyes were forced to watch the tragedy before him. Three men in holiday outfits had broken in and looted his home before brutally murdering his parents before his eyes. They left him bound to the armchair and escaped into the night. The final thoughts he could remember were the horrific sounds that each plunge of the blade made and the fatal shots that ended their lives. A sweet breeze brought him out of his trance and he quickly stepped through the yard of another home. Without hesitation, he kicked in the door and the parents turned around from the Christmas tree only to be shot multiple times in the torso. Two small children shrieked and cried in horror from the stairwell. They stood in shock as the man turned out the door and stepped into the cold. He quickly switched clips and fired a few shots into the air to alarm the neighborhood. Children and adults peeked out their doorways and windows, startled from the loud gunshots. Give me your attention, please, the man shouted in the desolate street. He gazed around to see all eyes on him before continuing. Before police arrive, I would like for you all to do one thing. Never forget the tragedies that can happen in such small and innocent communities. Never let your guard down and always keep together as a family. His voice trailed off as the echoes of sirens approached. He lifted the cold steel to his temple and spoke his final word as police arrived on scene with weapons drawn. Never forget he shouted before pulling the trigger. The fatal gunshot seemed to echo forever in the midst of the tragedy that had occurred. Children stayed close to their parents and siblings. Emergency vehicles closed off the street and sent a small group to retrieve the bodies. One of them, a young man in his early 20s, was preparing to cover the body of the killer when he noticed something odd. He noticed a photograph peeking from the sleeve of the outfit. He pulled it out and studied it. There was a small boy with a wide grin across his face, with his two parents behind him, and a tall, brightly decorated Christmas tree. On the back was a letter in sloppy handwriting, as if a child had written it. It read, Dear Mom and Dad, I'll be coming home soon to join you in the afterlife so that we can enjoy a holiday season together. Love, Tommy. He turned the photograph over again and noticed it was his family instead of the one previously there. A few days later, he and his family were brutally slaughtered in their home. Snow fell heavily outside the window as me and my best friend Kyrene chatted amongst ourselves, sharing the latest juicy gossip, while our mothers mingled in the kitchen, clanging their wine glasses merrily 
as Wham's Last Christmas played on repeat. Wow, your mom really went all out with the Christmas lights this year, didn't she? Kyrene said, in awe of the broad array of lights of all shapes, sizes, and colors that completely covered every inch of wall across the entire house. Yeah, to be honest with you, I'm kind of freaked out about it. Mom's been acting really strange these past few days. I don't know what it is, but it's like she's not there, you know? I replied. Well, the house looks great, Kyrene said, as he grabbed a handful of M&Ms from the big share pack on the table and shoveled them into his mouth. Then he spoke with a mouthful of wet chocolate. I wish my mom put this much effort in, just saying. I'm telling you, she has gone mad. Just last night, I caught her talking to the lights, like straight up talking to them like they were people. This stuff ain't normal. Dad didn't think so either. He stormed off to the pub yesterday and never came back. Before Kyrene could reply, our mothers danced drunkenly into the living room as last Christmas began playing once again. Come and dance with mommy. Kyrene looked over at me with a strange look before whispering. What's the matter with their eyes? I didn't know why their eyes constantly blinked all the colors of the rainbow, and I certainly didn't know why they had tumor-like growths that glowed like fairy lights on their bodies. What I did know was the fear I felt in that moment was like being inside a nightmare. Do you boys like the lights? We both stared blankly as our mother's appearance were no longer recognizable to us. Tonight we are having a light show for little baby Jesus. And you two are shining stars. I was about to run, but Kyrene had the idea first. As soon as he tried to bolt, the lights ripped themselves from the walls and blocked his escape. His pupils dilated when he looked into one of the little bulbs. Then he screamed, and his screams became muffles as the light snaked around his entire body and entered every crevice they could find. His body then erupted into flame as the electrical cords surrounding his body ignited. And soon enough, the entire house was on fire. Mom looked at me as flesh melted from her bone and she smiled while her eyeballs dripped down her cheeks. <laughs> Jesus wept, she said before laughing hysterically as her body burst into flame. I swore that night that I would never be within the vicinity of Christmas lights again. Though dreams plague me every Christmas, dreams of beautiful Christmas lights. 
Maybe I should decorate this year. It was the eve before Christmas. Snow fell heavily outside, blanketing everything in festive cocaine. The only sounds were the crackling of the fireplace and the clack, clack, clacking of a keyboard. Henry was lost within the world of his latest novel. It was an epic fantasy that he had been brewing up inside his mind for over a year. And as soon as he had sat down to write it, he found that the words came to him easily, flowing from him like a river. It was in this state of mind that he loved being the most absolutely immersed in his world and delving into the minds of his characters. Outside Henry's house, a cold wind was beginning to pick up. Just across the road stood a man with a white beard wearing a Santa Claus outfit and a big red overfilled sack in his hand. He was staring at the house in a trance-like state, watching the fairy lights that decorated the exterior with a crazed stare. Father Crinkle was mesmerized by the pretty lights as they flickered in an array of different colors, dancing before him like sparkles of festive joy. Very witty whites he thought. They reminded him of the lights his mother had liked to lash him with when he was a boy. It was a bonding activity that old Father Crinkle had enjoyed immensely and missed even more. His late mother had been gone for over 30 years now and he missed her. Nobody hit like her. Nobody broke the skin like mother did. Red droplets seeped from the sack in his hand, staining the snow beneath his feet in blood. Henry had been writing for almost four hours when he decided to call it a night. He made himself a cup of hot chocolate, drank it, and turned off the Christmas lights outside before heading to bed. Just as Henry was about to climb into bed, Somebody began to bang ferociously on his front door. He slowly and quietly made his way to the kitchen to grab a knife before opening the front door, revealing old Father Crinkle standing there with a toothless grin. Put pretty whites back on, please. Henry saw the red sack in the crazy man's hand and he saw the blood dripping from it. Go away, Henry shouted before showing the knife in his hand. Father Crinkle's eyes lit up when he saw the blade. Cutty, cutty, stabby, stabby, hee <laughs> Henry tried to slam the door shut, but Father Crinkle threw the sack in between the door, stopping it from closing. And when Henry saw what was inside the sack, he screamed. 
Inside were the dismembered heads of every resident on Henry Street. They were all piled up like a heap of bloody gore. The realization hit Henry like a sledgehammer. He was the last one left on the street. Father Crinkle produced a blood-stained hatchet from his trouser leg and smiled. Merry Christmas. Hi, my name's Jack, and, well, at first I didn't believe in myths, fairy tales, or even the paranormal, but... What happened to me changed my way of thinking about the world. It made me believe there are things out there that we just don't know about. Yet. So, where should I begin? I guess it all started December 22nd. It was the middle of winter and I lived in Maryland at the time. My wife and I had a divorce because I had cheated on her a few years ago. So, it was just me by myself. A few weeks after the divorce, she had a child. His name was Tyler, and even though I never got to see him, not even on my birthday, my wife made an exception to let him come out to see me this once. Only because Tyler kept asking her to let him see me that Christmas. Along with the fact his birthday was the 25th, she couldn't say no. Score one for Tyler. On December 23rd at 3 a.m., I met him for the first time at the airport. I came to tears to see my son for the first time in person. Just was one of those moments to where I couldn't help myself. He had yellowish-brown, curvy short hair. His eyes were dark brown, and he was breaking out with a few pimples on his face. He must have already hit the puberty stage, obviously. He wore a dark blue, no-sleeve jacket over a black t-shirt, and he also wore ripped jeans with Timberlake boots. He then came over to me and gave me a hug that lasted for a minute. We then went to get his luggage and then went back to my home. As soon as we got inside, I just gave him a tour of the place. His room was a little roomy with a couch, television, and a twin bed. The closet was small, but still big enough to walk in. It was more like a box big enough to walk in. He seemed satisfied with his room, because as soon as I showed it to him, he quickly laid down on the bed with a grin on his face. I'll just let you settle in and I'll be in the living room if you need me, I told him. I went downstairs, sat on the sofa, and picked up the remote to watch television. I turned to the History Channel because it always had something interesting to watch. This time, it talked mostly about sirens and mermaids. For two hours, I sat there watching it. Then I went to go check on Tyler... I opened the door and entered his room. To my surprise, he was already asleep, still wearing his clothes on top of the covers. I then heard music playing outside. 
I looked out the window next to the TV in Tyler's room. It was just my loud neighbors again. This had been going on ever since they moved to the area a year ago. Every time near the holidays, they would always have their music playing at night and then show off some new decorations on their house the next morning. They were only two teenagers, one boy, one girl. They seemed 17 years of age and, why yes, they looked like teens. They didn't act like teens. I would only see them once or twice out during the day and that's it. The next morning, my son and I were out at the store getting new decorations for my house. We picked out some yellow lights to go around the house, then picked out a Christmas tree to go in the living room. I plan on going all out for Tyler's birthday. Hey dad, do you mind if I go pick out one last thing before we go? He asked. I told him yes. Within a matter of ten minutes, he came back holding an envelope. We went to the checkout to buy all the decorations and other stuff. It did cost me a fortune, but I would do anything for my son. I drove us back home, and on my way up to the porch with the bags, I saw the two strange teens putting up their decorations. Everything was just plain white with red spots or stripes on them. The decorations also looked like they were all carved by hand. It must have taken hours to make all the decorations, maybe even days, because they came outside with snowflakes, reindeer, and one white and red Santa sleigh. They really upped their game this year. Nice decorations, I yelled to them. The two teens stopped what they were doing and looked up at me for a few minutes, then looked at my son, who was getting the rest of the stuff out of the car. They had a blank stare on their faces, not even a smile, and then went back to decorating. My son and I went inside to put up the Christmas tree in the living room. Here, you start putting the decorations on the tree and I'll go make us some eggnog, I told him giving him the decorations. What's eggnog? Sounds gross, he said. I just laughed and said, (laughs) It's not gross at all. I think you'll actually like it. Six hours went by, full of laughing and decorating. Then there was a knock at the door. I go to the door and open it, only to see an envelope on the ground. I closed the door and opened it. It read, Dear Jack, My husband and I are having a Christmas party at 10 tonight, and we wanted to invite you all to the fun. The whole neighborhood will be there. There will be snacks, drinks, and a few party games. Hope you can make it. Yours truly, Mrs. and Mr. Brightster. I then went to the table to put the letter down for a minute. Then Tyler came over to me with a different envelope. Here, Dad. I know it's a little early, but I couldn't wait till Christmas to give it to you, he said. I then opened it and pulled out a necklace and a card. The necklace had a little cross with a ring going over the cross. 
The whole necklace was silver-plated. Then I looked at the card and it read, Best Dad in the World. As corny as the card was, I gave my son a hug that lasted for two minutes. I then told him about the party and asked if he wanted to go. Sounds like fun, he said. All right, I'll drop you off there, but I want you back by 10.30, okay? I can't go with you because I have some stuff I need to take care of. Can I trust you to go there and come back by 10.30, I asked. Yes, you can, he said confidently. Five hours passed and Tyler was at the door ready to go to the party. I got my keys and we made our way to the car. That's when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed a small dog running across the street from something two houses down. Then a giant monstrosity pounced on the dog out of nowhere. The poor dog let out a loud shriek and the monster, that thing, opens its mouth to a full 180 degree angle, showing millions of rows of horrifying dagger-like teeth. Then it took a giant chomp out of half of the dog's body, blood being gushed out on the face of the monster. The dog let out three loud shrieks of pain and then was silenced due to the loss of blood. And I looked as the monstrosity chewed the dog's lower body in its mouth, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen. Its mouth was extremely wide, and when it chewed, the whole mouth swooshed down reaching a full three feet, and then going back up again. Then, I looked at its entire body. It was snake-like, and it must have been at least twelve feet long. Then I looked at its long, skinny arms. For the body of a serpent-like monster, I would expect the arms to be bigger. Then the hands were as long as half a skateboard. Its eyes were completely black, with a white spot in the center of them both. Then, it stopped eating and let out a loud, monstrous yell and stood up almost taller than me and, while it was standing, the rest of its body slithered on the ground, making the whole monster move out of sight. I was so disgusted by what I had just witnessed. I quickly grabbed my son's wrist and pulled him inside and told him, Son, I need you to shut and lock every door and window in the house right now. He went upstairs to do so, while I did the same thing downstairs. A few minutes pass and my son comes downstairs. Dad, what happened? I couldn't tell him what I saw, so I thought fast and said, Well, I figured it was the first time I've seen my own flesh and blood, and it's most likely going to be the last that we could spend some time together, you know, play a board game or just try to get to know each other. He gave me a blank stare for a minute and said, Okay, I think I saw a Monopoly board game upstairs somewhere. Uh, I'll go get it. 
I give Tyler a small grin and he went back up the stairs. When he was gone, I looked out through the blinds on the window to make sure that horrific thing was gone. But all I saw were lights from the party Mr. and Mrs. Brightster were having. My son comes back downstairs, phone in hand, and an excited expression on his face. Dad, look at this. It was so cool. I caught it on my phone, Tyler said. He gave me his cell phone to look at the video and then rambled on and on about his findings. He said that two giant serpent-like creatures were going back and forth from our neighbor's house over to the Brightster's house where the party was being held. He also said that each time they would slither over the fence of the Brightster's house empty-handed, then come back with two motionless people being held in their arms, going back to our neighbor's backyard where the two strange teens were living in. He also said that this happened three times while he was upstairs for the whole two minutes. The fourth time, the two serpents stopped at the fence of the Brightster's house and looked directly at him, as if they were looking into his very soul. They then turned their head to a full 180 degrees without their bodies moving the same way. Then, both of them gave my son a giant smile that was just about bigger than their face, and their eyes glowed bright red. After their little display of horror, they jumped the fence to go back to what they were doing before. I looked at the video my son Tyler had caught on his phone, and what I saw made me shiver just by looking at it. Everything the phone showed me was everything my son just told me. Also knowing that there are two of these things in the neighborhood, and just seeing the way they looked at my son, I just didn't know what to think. To think those things could come after my son, it just... It just... No, I can't even imagine such a thing. I would rather die than let those things take my son away from me. I need some time to think about what I was going to do. I told Tyler to watch some TV or something and to keep the phone with me for a while. He didn't seem to mind at all. Hours had gone by with me watching the video over and over again. In my mind, I was asking myself, why were those things here? Where did they come from? And what are their plans? These questions were spinning around my head like a tornado. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't call the cops. They would just laugh right in my face if I told them that there were two serpent monsters in the area. I definitely couldn't tell my ex because that's just one headache I didn't feel like having right now. I guess all I could do was keep this on the down low until the whole thing blows over. December 24th, Christmas was just one day away and the gifts for my son were already under the Christmas tree. Tyler was still asleep in bed, so I decided to go ahead and make a good breakfast for him to wake up to. 
I pulled out a good cookbook that was passed on to me by my mom. I came from a family of good cooks. All of our family recipes were kept in this very book. I flipped through a couple of pages until I found Lumber Chunk in Breakfast. It said on the page this recipe was made by my great-grandmother, but the year was smudged, so I didn't know when it was made. It looked like a good idea, so I grabbed some eggs out of the fridge, pulled out the pancake mix, and pulled out some OJ from the fridge as well. Then, I pulled out two pans and started cooking. I guess the sound of sizzling eggs woke up Tyler because I saw him come downstairs wearing nothing but some jeans and a no-sleep t-shirt while rubbing his eyes. He didn't say anything for a few minutes. Then he asked, What's for breakfast? Pancake, sausage, eggs with bacon and OJ, I told him. He then sat down on the couch and picked up the remote to watch TV. After a few minutes of cooking, I have breakfast all set on the table. The food is done. Come and get it, I said. Within one second, Tyler was at the table gobbling down all the food on his plate. I don't even think I saw him chew his food first. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door. I went over from the table to open the door. It was Mrs. Brightster, and she had tears running down her cheeks while giving me a look of sorrow. And in her hand, she held a CD. I'm sorry for your loss, Jack, she said. My loss? What are you talking about? I said. She just looked down and handed me the CD. I thought she was joking, so I started to chuckle. <laughs> oh, I get it. A joke. Ha ha. Nice try, Mrs. Brightster. I said playfully. She then lifted her face back up at me, still with the same expression on her face, and said, I found this in my mailbox this morning. And when I went to play it, it showed... It showed me your son being brutally tortured by these two horrible creatures. I'm so sorry. I quickly smiled and laughed out loud again. And turned around to show her my son was at the table eating breakfast. But when I did, no one was there. All I saw was the food I made sitting on the table still intact and still hot, as if it had never been touched. The TV was off and the remote was still on the couch, just the way I left it last night. It was as if the last two hours I spent with my son this morning never happened. The smile quickly turned into a frown, and then I looked back at Mrs. Brightster and snatched the CD from her hand. Then... I went back into the house to look for my son. I yelled his name from downstairs. No answer. Next. I said that if he didn't come downstairs, I would whoop him with my leather belt. Nothing. Not even a thump of his foot stepping on the floor. So I quickly ran upstairs to his room. 
He was still sleeping in bed with the pillow covering his head. But just seeing him sleeping in bed wasn't good enough for me. I wanted to make sure he was breathing. I needed to know he was still on this earth. I had to know. I then took the pillow from over his head and threw it to the floor. Then, what I saw was my son. But his eyes were popped out of their sockets, and there was a big cut in his throat. Dry blood was all over his face. I then noticed a small folded piece of paper in his neck where the cut was. I grabbed the bloody folded paper, then opened it. It read, Look under the bed. And when I did what the note instructed me to do, I found a small gift box wrapped with blue and green wrapping paper with a little bow on top of the box. I took the box from under the bed and ripped all the wrapping paper off and then opened the box. There was a little note that said, Merry Christmas, next to an eyeball. For most children, Christmas is a celebration worth looking forward to. For 13-year-old Evan, it was something to fear. Evan still remembered his seventh Christmas Eve clearly, an evening that he, like most children, had been looking forward to for a long time. The next morning, he would get up early and open all his presents, eager to see what surprises Santa had left him. Evan imagined the restless night ahead and thought, if he listened hard, he might be able to hear Santa come down the chimney. But this Christmas Eve didn't go all to plan. It wasn't long before Evan's excitement gave way to horror. Mom had insisted that Santa wouldn't come if Evan stayed up late and she had just began sending him off to bed when Evan was distracted by a loud, muffled thump on the roof. It seemed to be coming directly above the fireplace. It was like the night before Christmas. There arose such a clatter, and Evan approached the chimney to see what was the matter. Was it now that Santa had decided to make an appearance? Ash was falling from the nooks and crannies of the chimney to the bottom of the fireplace, sending out charcoal smoke and a burnt smell. Something, someone, had to be disturbing the ash. Evan was alone. Who else went down the chimney at this time on Christmas Eve? The chimney rattled, and a deep, rolling voice hit the air. Santa's famous, ho, ho. Oh, echoed down the chimney as Evan watched in delight. Things were silent for a moment. Evan's mother stood behind him watching, then arose the biggest clatter yet. There was an explosion of grayish smoke as mountains of ash fell to the bottom of the fireplace. The fireplace shook 
as if there was a sudden earthquake. Then, amidst the grayness, there was a flash red and a tremendous thump. Had Santa made it? Evan rushed forward, unable to stop himself. He felt a flare of excitement, but Mom was first to the chimney. Evan tried to remember the last time his mother had expressed excitement and couldn't. Then the smoke cleared, and the fallen Santa came into view. He didn't have quite the belly Evan had expected, but this was the least of his observations. Evan gasped as he saw that Santa's beard had appeared to slide off during his fall. But there was no blood. The only blood came from Santa's head, and it was just a trickle. The bad thing was that the trickle of blood was coming from what looked like a big dent in Santa's head. Evan frowned. Santa couldn't die. He was too good for that. He couldn't die. Not now. So, had somebody played a trick on him? Evan glanced at the beard that had appeared to slide down Santa's face. Beards didn't move like that. At least, not without there being blood. So then, if it wasn't a real beard, it had to be a fake one. But if that was a fake beard, then Santa's suit was also a fake suit. This wasn't the real Santa. This was Santa in disguise. Evan glanced once more at the fake Santa's exposed features, trying to figure out who this person could be, and made sense of the face that seemed so familiar to him. He realized for the first time that Mom had never been excited. Instead, she had rushed to the fake Santa's body in grief, Sobs racked her body, her tears dripping on the fake Santa suit. Evan stood dumbfounded and choked out one word. Dad? Evan woke up in a cold sweat, bolting upright into a sitting position. He glanced at his watch and read the time. 2.19 a.m., before the light on his watch went off, he read the date, December 20th, only five more days until Christmas. Once upon a time, Evan would have been happy about this, but now he wished that Christmas never came. It was the same dream again, accurate in every detail. That evening was exactly how it had been in his dream. It never ceased to amaze Evan how vivid these dreams were. They got downright to the core and forced Evan to relive the worst moment in his life. Those goddamn nightmares. They got worse around Christmas. He would dream of that fateful evening his father slipped and fell down the chimney, smashing his skull in on the way down. Or... He would dream of those claws, those razor-sharp strips of polished bone, weapons that could slice through him like butter if they gave so much as a flick. Most kids grew out of their belief in Santa. 
came to accept that Santa was just another myth made up to make children happy. But Evan hadn't grown out of it. He had been jolted out of it, his belief shattered with the tragic death of his father. Evan's father had only been trying to surprise Evan, but he had done much more than that. He had bent Evan beyond repair, and every Christmas, Santa Claus would haunt Evan. Evan was convinced Santa Claus was some kind of demon in humanoid form. He was definitely not human. He was a supernatural entity of sorts. But Evan had always thought of him as a demon. Santa Claus had been in Evan's life ever since his father died. And though he was mostly absent during the year, he would come back around November, maybe late October. When it became nearer to Christmas, well... He would become more persistent then. There were the nightmares, for one thing, and the visions, and Evan had no shortage of seizures around Christmas time. When Santa Claus was at his worst, sometimes Evan had panic attacks that seemed to come from nowhere, and there was no doubt who had caused them. Evan was no stranger to bullying at school because of his seizures and his strong dislike for Christmas. Santa Claus had taken its toll on Evan. Evan knew that Santa Claus had, in some way, been triggered by his father's death. Sometimes Evan believed that Santa Claus was actually his father's ghost, turned evil in the existence of the afterlife. Evan wasn't one to believe in the supernatural but Santa Claus had changed his mind about a lot of things. After a while, Evan had been forced to accept that Santa Claus was always going to come back, even if Evan grew out of his own personal dislike for Christmas, he would never have a joyful Christmas again. It was Christmas that had caused his father's death. It was Christmas that had caused Santa Claus to come. Evan's head flopped back on his pillow. School had finished weeks before, but Evan was still dreading the next day and every day to come until Christmas. What Evan was looking forward to was the absence of Santa Claus. Santa Claus would hang around for a bit after Christmas, then he'd slowly fade away and Evan would be free of his presence between February and November. Then, he could forget about Christmas, pretend it never existed. But no matter what, Santa Claus would always come back, and Evan was sure he would never be free of his demonic existence again. Evan woke up early and rolled out of bed, opening his laptop without bothering to draw the curtains or turn on the light. He wanted to go online check his Facebook, play some games, do anything to take his mind off Christmas and, more importantly, Santa Claus. It was an hour or two before Evan sat down to a lazy breakfast of cornflakes, by which time Evan's mother had gotten out of bed. 
Mom had shut herself out from society a while after she unexpectedly became a widow, developing a strong case of depression. Eventually, she had come to terms with her husband's death and became a more loving mother to Evan than ever, but she still had her bad days. Sometimes Evan wondered whether Santa Claus was in her mind too. They both supported each other a lot, but Evan couldn't help but feel that the house was lonely every once in a while. Evan had told his mom about Santa Claus for the first few years after his father's death, but then he had decided to pretend he had outgrown it. He didn't want to put extra weight on mom's shoulders, and the last thing he wanted to do was to make it seem like he was a child. But Evan couldn't hide the seizures. He couldn't hide the fact that he was sometimes absorbed in a hallucination after concerning Santa Claus. Evan's mom seemed to blame it on the trauma he had received after his father's death. Sure, maybe not all kids would experience that type of trauma, but everyone's different, aren't they? Evan said good morning to mom and continued to eat his cornflakes. The fireplace was directly to his right, and Evan thought he could catch a glimpse of red out of the corner of his eye. His head turned. Nothing. Paranoia. Or maybe Santa Claus was playing tricks on him. Either way, Evan didn't fancy seeing Santa Claus in the flesh. He had seen him already, five times to be exact, and would see him a sixth time for every Christmas Eve at 8.13 p.m., the exact time his father had fallen. He appeared in the fireplace, and Evan was always there to watch him make an appearance. It was then that Evan decided that this year he was going to be prepared. It would be no different to any other year. Santa Claus would appear in the fireplace at exactly the same time as he had the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that year. Mom was never around. She always went to bed early on Christmas Eve or stayed in bed the entire day. This time, Evan wouldn't just be watching Santa Claus he'd destroy Santa Claus once and for all. Why hadn't he thought of it before? That day, Evan confined himself to the safety of his home, or, more specifically, his bedroom. He distracted himself with computer games and other activities, while all the time planning how he was going to get rid of Santa Claus when he made an appearance. Before his father died... He had a hunting rifle that hung on a hook in the wall. After his death, it had been hidden away inside his wardrobe, which was, of course, in the bedroom Mom slept in. A gun was Evan's closest shot, and it was the only thing he could think of that might kill Santa Claus. What else was he supposed to do? Shout a few defiant words and attack Santa Claus with his bare hands? His dead father's old hunting rifle was the only gun possible for Evan to obtain. The only problem was, 
getting it out of the wardrobe without his mother catching him, and she was sure to get suspicious if she saw him taking a gun out of the wardrobe. This proved to be an easier task than Evan thought, however. When Mom went out to do some shopping, Evan went straight to the wardrobe doors and started burrowing through the clothes. It was then that he experienced the seizure. Evan had just caught sight of the gun when a sudden jolt ran through his body. His muscles were paralyzed, his joints frozen in place. Evan was unable to do anything but stare helplessly as he fell backwards onto the wooden floor. Electricity ran through his body, which was now twitching madly on the floor. Shadows danced in front of his eyes as the visions began. He saw his father, now an ash-covered skeleton, wearing a Santa hat, leering down at him through empty eye sockets. He saw a Christmas tree decorated with bloodied limbs, organs, and what looked like unraveled intestines. He saw claws curling in front of his eyes, claws that could cut him in two if he did so much as blink. Evan came to just as he heard the car pulling into the driveway. Frantically, his eyes darted around, searching for the hunting rifle. Something thin and black poking out from a pile of clothes caught his eye. The rifle. He snatched it up and bolted towards his room, not remembering to close the wardrobe door. He had just reached his bedroom when Mom opened the front door. It wasn't until his mother called out to him an hour or so later. Evan, have you been through my wardrobe? That Evan remembered that he had neglected to close the wardrobe door. Uh, yeah... Evan replied, thinking quickly. I was looking for a jacket, you know, since all my other ones are too small. It's pretty cold with the snow and all. Evan was proud his voice didn't so much as quiver. Because of this, Mom didn't pursue the subject any longer. In that one day, Evan experienced the seizure inside the wardrobe. Frequent flashes of movement out of the corner of his eye and a brief hallucination. Usually it was worse around this time, but Evan had it lucky. The nightmares didn't improve that night. The next day, Evan realized he had no bullets for the rifle. He had forgotten to find some in his panic to get out of the room before his mother saw. Mom didn't go out that day, but... Evan decided to have a look through the wardrobe anyway, and if she asked, he'd make up the same lie as yesterday. After some serious rummaging, he found three stray bullets hidden in a corner of the wardrobe in a plastic casing. This time, he didn't forget to close the wardrobe door. He put the bullets in his pocket in case Mom should enter the hallway, but she didn't. The plan was looking successful. That day, Santa Claus talked to Evan. The words were spoken inside Evan's head, but Evan knew well who they belonged to. Evan found he couldn't remember most of the speech afterwards, but knew it had something to do with Evan's plan to kill Santa Claus. Of course, 
Santa Claus could get inside Evan's head, so why shouldn't he be able to read Evan's thoughts? This was what he had done. Still, Evan wasn't prepared to give up so quickly. That day, he might have seen a lot of things that weren't there, but Evan kept his thoughts on that loaded rifle. On the 22nd of December, Evan not only heard Santa Claus and experienced his visions, but also felt Santa Claus on his own flesh. At one point, it felt like a cat was running its claws across his arm, but no one was there. Still, that didn't stop blood from flowing. When Alm asked him what had happened to his arm, he said that Stormo had scratched him. Evan had an old tabby cat called Stormo and was no stranger to his scratches. Mom didn't notice the seizures and hallucinations simply because Evan confined himself to his room all day. It was a pitiful existence, but Evan knew he had to do it to avoid suspicion. Mom blamed it on what had happened with his father, relating it to past trauma and... As a consequence, feeling the need to shut himself away from what the experience had been related to. Christmas. Evan didn't have any problems with this. The 23rd passed quickly, but the 24th was the worst day he had experienced so far. He spent much of his time being tormented by the demonic presence of Santa Claus his frightening messages ringing in his ears. Once, Mom walked into the room while he was having a seizure on his bed, but was able to avoid suspicion by saying he was in the middle of a nightmare. Time dragged on as Evan became more and more tormented. Evan's mother went to bed early, as she normally did on Christmas Eve. This left Evan two more hours until Santa Claus made an appearance. Every past year, Evan had been at the fireplace at 8.13, but this was because Santa Claus had willed him to be there. He had felt his legs move and had been unable to stop them. Santa Claus wanted Evan to be there to see him in the flesh. This was why Evan made sure he had the rifle clutched tightly in his hands before the time came. Evan glanced at his watch nervously. No, he was past nervous. He was terrified. 8.13 came, and nothing happened. But at the 22nd mark, he felt his legs moving down the hallway towards the lounge. His hands opened the lounge door, he approached the fireplace. The curtains were drawn. The lights were out. It was dark, and Evan could see nothing except the silhouette of Santa Claus in the fireplace. Evan could see the outline of a Santa hat on his head, and was no stranger to the claws that hung at the shadow's side. Evan felt the presence of Santa Claus knew that Santa Claus would soon be illuminated by a ghostly light and Evan would be able to see him in the flesh. Then he would raise the gun, pull the trigger, and it would be over. Or 
So he hoped. Evan stood there for what seemed like forever. Then the empty, bleeding eye sockets came into view. That white, almost transparent skin. The sharp, bloodied set of teeth that showed from behind slimy lips. The tattered Santa suit smeared with the blood of innocent victims. And worst of all, the long, knife-sharp set of claws that hung at each side. Evan was terrified. He stood paralyzed with fear as Santa Claus grinned and raised his hands toward him. Evan was unable to move, unable to do anything but watch as the claws came closer and closer to reaching him. It was too late to shoot now. It was all over. But as Evan stood frozen, his muscles stiffened and his finger tightened around the trigger. There was a terrific bang and a blinding flash of light. The world faded to black. Evan woke to mom shaking him frantically. He blinked, trying to figure out what had happened. Then he remembered he had killed Santa Claus. Mom said she had heard a bang and had come in to see what the noise was. When she saw that Evan was holding the hunting rifle, her first thought was that Evan had shot himself, but she had seen that there was no noticeable bullet wound and Evan was clearly still breathing. Evan was exhausted but too happy to comment. His face broke into a smile. I did it, he whispered. Mom looked concerned. You're not well, Evan. You're going to a doctor as soon as possible. I worry about you. I killed Santa Claus, Evan babbled, oblivious to his mother's concern. He was overcome with the joy that Santa Claus would no longer be in his life. I'm not just worried about you, Evan. I'm also quite angry with you, Mom said his eyebrows knitting into a scowl. Somehow, you vandalized the fireplace. It looks like something out of a horror movie. Evan frowned. I never vandalized the fireplace? Mom sighed. Then how do you explain that? She said, pointing. Evan twisted his head around to face the fireplace. Solid crimson letters had been written on the brick wall behind the fireplace. The paint looked fresh, and Evan could see it still trickling down the wall. But not paint, Evan realized, but blood. Ho, ho, ho. I'm coming for you. was the night before Christmas, and as the sun set, young Sophia was excited to go to bed with no haste. Sophia planned to wait for Santa and finally get the proof she needs to prove to her friends, her parents, and her brother that Santa was not fake. 
he is as real as a snowflake. She got ready for bed, brushing her teeth and grabbing her old camera to take a photo of Santa while walking to bed. Sophia heard the snow falling through the closed windows. Her lights were on so she didn't accidentally go to sleep or get scared. She lied on her dark blue bed, waiting for the jolly Saint Nick to come to her house. While waiting, Sophia wondered, why has no other kid actually done this before? Sophia was bored waiting for Santa so that she wouldn't fall asleep. Sophia pulled out her old radio to play Christmas music as she waited. She listened to Christmas music quietly in her room while she was playing with toys. Suddenly, the radio started to go to static and glitchy. She tried to fix the radio, but saw that the lights in her room were also flickering as she started hearing a very low and static version of Santa Claus was coming to town. Sophia was greatly frightened and let out a yelp when everything in her room turned off. Sophia ran to her bed and quickly put herself under the covers. As Sophia cowered in fear, she waited for a while, scared by every noise she heard around her, whether it was the house settling or the wind outside blowing. Sophia began to hear something trapped constantly on her window. Sophia was scared and shaken, not wanting to get out of bed. The tapping got louder and louder as it kept tapping twice every second. Sophia tried to wait until the tapping stopped, but it didn't. Sophia gathered all the courage she had to look at what was tapping at her window. Sophia slowly pulled down the covers over her head and saw him. Santa, looking into Sophie's room while tapping on the window. Thought it looked like him with the red festive hat and the white furry beard, but there were things that were off with his sunken eyes and an unsettling smile with food all over their beard. Sophia gasped at what she saw, which caused him to turn his face right towards Sophia, then started tapping on her window faster and louder than ever before. Sophia hid under her covers. She closed her eyes tightly while making as little noise as possible. The tapping stopped, and Sophia felt the air around her getting colder. Sophia decided to look again, but when she did... All she saw was that her window was wide open. She looked frantically around her dark room, knowing that whoever was outside was now in her room. The moonlight was the only source of light, but there was nothing she could find. Sophia was ready to get out of bed when she suddenly heard the same tapping in her closet near the door. Sophia focused on the closet door that was open slightly, and then she saw the man's face staring at her through the cracks. Sophia was frozen in fear, not knowing what to do. 
knowing there wasn't a way out. All she did was stare at the closet door for what seemed like minutes, but felt like hours to her. The door to the closet slowly opens. All the noise in the room is now Sophia's breathing and whimpers. Slowly, the man's head started to become more visible, which looked like a more deformed Santa's. While it slowly peeked out of the closet as Sophia tried to back herself into a corner to stay as far away from this deformed Santa as possible. This Santa's head is finally full out, showing more of his neck. This creature's neck was very long, making it look like a huge worm with a human head. Sophia took everything she had in her to scream for her parents' help. Before Sophia got a chance to yell for her parents, the creature quickly lengthened its neck to get to Sophia's bed then extended its mouth really wide, enough to fit Sophia in and swallow her whole. There was barely any room for Sophia to move around, and all she felt was a slimy substance all over her. With what little air there was in that tight space, Sophia tried kicking and screaming and doing whatever she could to get out. It felt like forever until the creature started making noises and spat Sophia out. Sophia was covered in snot and slobber, making her colder in what appeared to be a very cold and dark room with only one door and no windows. Sophia put her ear against the door, hearing strange noises behind the door. Without any other choice, Sophia opened the door to see dozens of other children of all races, making toys. The children looked tired and dirty, all of them so fixated on what they were doing. There was a door behind the children, and above it, it said, Santa's Workshop. When all the children heard Sophia walk into the room, they all stopped what they were doing and looked at Sophia. The kids Sophia's age, or... Blinkness, emotionless, like all their life have been drained from them. The elder children had fear in their eyes and they shook, terrified. The huge door behind them opened. The creature poked out its head with its long, flimsy neck, making unspeakable noises that made Sophia lightheaded. The monster's neck was long enough to circle the room next to all its prey. Its eyes were fixed on the elder children as it comes up towards them and sniffs every single one of them. The monster stopped at a boy who spoke Turkish. He begged the creature, but it didn't seem to care. It quickly wraps its neck around the boy like a snake with its prey. While the boy screamed for mercy, the monster pulled him into the door that it came from and all the children just looked at the door. Some of them were relieved, but the rest just stared blankly. A few seconds later, all the children stood up and entered the room the creature took the boy. Sophia followed them slowly in the room, and she saw a big table enough to seat all the children. The boy was strapped onto the table, 
he shouted and pleaded. The other children swarmed him and began to feast on his flesh, tearing him apart and eating him. Sophia backed herself into one of the corners and watched how the other children ate. One of the kids, a girl wearing a hijab with blood on her lips, gave Sophia a bloody chunk of the torn boy. That's when Sophia knew this was her new life now. To work constantly and wait to be eaten by the children that will come after her. Opal stared on hopelessly as her friend burned to death in the cozy fireplace before her, its mantle lined with stereotypically idyllic photographs of the black-haired, blue-eyed twins that had tormented them for the last and longest evening of their life. She struggled desperately against her maniacals, but the iron chains weighed more than she did and the Christmas tree they were attached to was so enormous and heavy with ornaments that it proved impossible to overturn. She tried to scream, beg, cry, anything, but all her vocalizations were incoherently muffled by the candy cane-stripped gag in her mouth. Even were she not gagged, it was hard to imagine She could ever cry loud enough to be overheard over the agonized, dying screams of her friend as the fire devoured her whole, burning down through her flesh and out through her lungs as she inhaled the blaze. In a mix of terror and instinctive self-preservation, she thrashed against the cast-iron screen that imprisoned her within the fireplace. The female twin sadistically forced her back with a poking iron as the male sat smirking on the couch, content merely to watch. When the twin withdrew the iron, it carried a large chunk of smoldering flesh on its end. Opal nearly threw up in her gag when she saw the twin ravenously tear off about half of the flesh with her teeth and devoured it with a depraved relish before passing the rest to her brother for him to finish. Eventually, inevitably, and all too quickly, Opal watched her friend succumb to the fire, reduced to a charring and blackening corpse coiled up in a fetal position. Opal broke down and sobbed feebly as the female twin hung a kettle over the crackling carcass and went to replay a Christmas album on their mid-20th century record player. Opal turned her gaze to the snow-swept glass doors to what she assumed was a balcony. She briefly humored the notion of somehow severing her hands free of the maniacals, kicking them to the cannibal twins as a distraction and making a break for it but quickly thought better of it. Since no one had heard or heeded their desperate cries for help, there was either no one else around or, if there were, they were allied or subject to the twins. 
Opal had no idea where she was or how high up she was, and how far could she really expect to get with a pair of hemorrhaging wrists. Still, after witnessing what they had done to her friend, it might be the most peaceful death she could hope for. When the kettle began to whistle, the female twin returned to retrieve it, using it to fill a pair of pre-garnished glass mugs that she set on the coffee table in front of her brother. There we are, James, darling. The perfect holiday drink. Extra strong hot toddies, she announced enthusiastically, a drunken drawl already present in her speech. All whiskey, no water. Fish fuck in it, as Frankie used to say. Affectionately cuddling up beside him, the twins clinked their glasses together in a toast before taking their first sips. As always, Mary Darling, your annual Christmas party has been a resounding success, James congratulated her. Well, I can't take all the credit. You rounded up the guests, after all. Mary returned the compliment laughing as she gestured towards the corpse in the chimney. It's a shame to waste all that meat, but it's a special occasion. As much as I love my knives, burning to death sure is one heck of a spectacle. It surely is, one that will be hard to top at any rate, he added, his gaze drifting over to Opal. How about an encore, then? Uh-uh. I'm sorry, James, darling, but I'm afraid we've reached that point in the festivities where my addiction to alcohol has triumphed over my addiction to violence and human flesh. She apologized, while unapologetically taking a deep draught from her mug of hot whiskey. No need to apologize, Mary, darling. A balanced life means taking time to attend to all one's addictions. Well put, James, darling, she agreed. Besides, I'm awfully cozy cuddled up here beside you. Instead of getting up, how about we give this girl an environmental challenge? This time, I'll be the one who watches and you can work the control panel. Sounds like a plan, Mary, darling, James nodded putting down his drink and pulling out an antiquated-looking bronze keyboard covered in hundreds of switches, knobs, buttons, and faders. Why don't you explain how this works to our guest while I get this set up? Right. Listen up here, ducky, Mary said as she leaned in toward Opal. Do you know the song that's playing right now? It's, baby, it's cold outside. Now, I'm a bit of a shut-in, but I've heard that this song is a bit controversial these days. I don't know if it's just because I'm old-fashioned or because I'm rather predatory myself, but this is one of my favorite Christmas songs. It's also highly appropriate since you're going to have to choose between braving the winter cold or staying inside with a dangerously depraved 
Miss Grant, and her brother, who honestly isn't any better. He's just a bit more practiced in the social graces than I am. The choice may seem obvious at first, but you need to understand a little bit about where you are, though. You're inside our playroom, and we control everything in here. Everything. We can control it through sheer will when necessary. But my brother has had a bit of a knack for paratech and can make megatronic controls that make the whole process much quicker and more precise. And outside the residence is still inside our playroom. So, the choice isn't really between us and the cold. It's between the cold we control and taking us head on. You may not care for your odds in a fight with us, but keep in mind, we do have one rather glaring Achilles heel. We're horrible drunks. I don't think that's an entirely fair assessment, Mary darling. I've always considered you a perfectly lovely drunk, James interjected. Oh, Mary cooed. Well, whatever kind of drunk I am, I am a drunk. And frankly, this pint of whiskey is going to my head faster than I expected. I'm likely to be nodding off momentarily, Ducky. So you'd honestly just have to slit my throat in my sleep to get past me. That is, if my brother wasn't sitting right here to protect me. One of the two of us, he's always been the more functional alcoholic. I certainly feel safe with him here, but the choice is yours. Opal's maniacals suddenly unlocked and clattered to the hardwood floor below. Wide-eyed, she looked toward her tormentors for any signs of what they intended to do next. Mary just took another long sip of whiskey while James smirked at her with his finger hovering over a button on his control panel. It wasn't necessarily a rational decision, but facing the winter cold and only the tattered remnants of her clothes seemed like a safer option than just trying to get past the darling twins and out their front door. Limping as quickly as she could, she bolted to the glass doors and out onto the balcony. She saw that she was several stories off the ground, and the landscape all around her was covered in freshly fallen snow. The air was cold, but still, with fluffy snowflakes gently wafting downwards. This was odd since the sky was crystal clear and abundant with twinkling stars. Opal had no formal knowledge of astronomy, and had not spent much time staring up at the night sky but she could still tell at once that the stars were wrong. They were too bright, too regularly spaced, and were moving too quickly. Turning her attention back to the more prosaic matter of the ground, she saw that there was a snow-covered but plowed road leading straight ahead to a canariferous tree line 
in the lights of human habitation. It was the only sign of civilization she could see, and so she had little choice but to make for it. Looking over the edge of the balcony, she saw that a snowbank of soft and fluffy fresh snow had piled up directly underneath her. Maybe, just maybe, it would be enough to break her fall. She took one final look behind her and saw that the darlings were still sitting on the couch. Mary had already polished off her pint of whiskey and had unsurprisingly lost consciousness. Her head rested upon her brother's shoulder as she snored loudly. James, on the other hand, was still wide awake. His eyes were trained on her like a cat watching a mouse, just waiting for her to run so that the chase could begin. Opal leaped over the balcony's edge and into the snow below without a second thought. She screamed as she was enveloped by a frigidly cold snow, but it successfully slowed her descent enough that her fall left her unharmed. Frantically, she tried to dig herself out before she suffocated, but the fluffy snow was so light that she was never in any danger of that. Within seconds, she was free. The plowed road and the possibility of escape laid out before her. Tearing the gag from her mouth and letting out hours worth of built-up screams all at once, she burst out into a sprint and raced to the village on the edge of the horizon. She ran as much to keep warm as she did to escape from the darlings, hoping that she could stab off frostbite long enough to get to some sort of shelter. She could already feel her toes starting to numb as they slammed against the packed snow beneath her. She could barely go more than a few seconds without checking to see if James was in pursuit. But she was otherwise mostly heedless of her surroundings. It took her a moment to notice that the street lamps that lined the road appeared to be made of ice and that their lights were paradoxically brightly burning flames. Further up the road, she spotted what looked like humanoid figures lining its edges. Her first thought was, of course, that they were people, but almost immediately realized that that couldn't be true. They were all completely white, as white as the snow around them, and so her next assumption was that they were snow or ice sculptures, or perhaps more permanent statues with a dusting of snow. She didn't dare to slow down to get a better look as she passed them but she at least got close enough to see that they were made from ice, or rather, they had a veneer of ice. In the flickering light of the overhead fire, Opal could just faintly make out the distorted forms of, hopefully, dead bodies trapped inside. All of them were posed in a tableau of either Christmas or winter activities, from caroling to sledding to snowball fights. Opal didn't hesitate to pick up her pace and leave the ghoulish statues behind her, lest she share in their morbid fate. She was perhaps too reckless in her flight, as she finally lost her footing on the slippery snow and fell to the ground. The fall winded her, and the snow seemed to have gained an unnatural capacity for sucking the heat from her body. 
Shivering, she tried to right herself, but with every attempt, she just fell back down. The ground, which had moments before been packed snow, was now pristine and virtually frictionless ice that proved impossible to stand on. Looking backwards towards the apartment building, she panicked at the sight of James skating towards her in a coat and toque. He deliberately held his hands behind his back so that she couldn't see what sort of weapon he was armed with. Abandoning any effort to get on her feet again, she instead began to drag herself across the road to the steep snow banks that delineated it from the snowy landscape behind. James would have to chase after her in either his skates or his socks, giving her at least a chance of outrunning him. Sorry, dear, but the laborious chase through the snow is a bit cliché for my tastes, James shouted at her. Before she was able to get off the icy road, it began to tilt downwards, enough that she instantly found herself sliding forwards against her will. Screaming, she flailed her limbs about wildly as she tried to slow her descent, but it all proved utterly futile as she just kept picking up speed. Ahead of her, the road inverted its incline and turned upwards, forming a ramp that was sure to send her flying through the air and likely to her doom. She clawed desperately at the road as she slid down, but she succeeded only in ripping her nails from her cuticles. Faster and faster she went until she was inevitably launched skyward in a prolonged parabolic arch, screaming hysterically as the already freezing cold air beat against her at speeds approaching hurricane velocities. James was right behind her, soaring through the air with the calm professional control of an Olympic skater. The two of them went over the tree line and into a small village of brightly lit gingerbread houses, built around a frozen fountain in the circular town square. As Opal plummeted straight towards the fountain, she was certain she would splatter against it, and that would be the end of her. At the very last second, however, the ice phase shifted back into water, or rather, animalous water that lacked all surface tension. She plunged down deep into it, and it was the coldest thing she had ever felt. But she wasn't dead. She swam back to the surface and hauled herself out, huddling up against the fountain's basin as she tried to retain as much body heat as she could. She gradually became aware of the sound of skates cutting through the ice. Looking up, she saw that James was doing laps around the fountain, having not only survived his fall, but landed unscathed with the elegance of a cat. So, what do you think of our Christmas village? He asked as he circled her like a raptor circling its prey. I was worried you wouldn't make it this far. Mary designed this place herself. It's always a big hit with the kids. Until they see what's inside, that is. He skidded to a stop in front of her, taking his hands out from behind his back to reveal he was carrying a large and heavy-looking candy cane. I'm going to give you one minute more, Opal, he told her. 
If at the end of that minute you're still sitting there, I'll beat you to death with the novelty-sized candy cane. If, however, you'd like to continue to fight for your life, however futile it may seem, I won't stop you from running into one of these buildings to either hide or find something to defend yourself with. Starting now. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Though she was shivering so badly it was hard to move, she forced herself to her feet and took a quick assessment of all the buildings around the town square. There was an inn, a shop, a post office, a town hall, a toy factory, a train station, and a chapel. The inn seemed the most likely to hold kitchen utensils, and the toy factory to have tools, both of which she could make into improvised weapons. The chapel, however, had a steeple, and she got the feeling that gravity might prove to be the best weapon she could defend herself with. If she could get herself into a defensible position, a well-timed and well-placed kick could be enough to send James tumbling down a flight of stairs or over the belfry. Grabbing a hold of the fountain to steady herself, Opal hoisted herself back to her feet and took care to slide rather than walk over the frictionless ice towards the chapel. As James continued to count, she made her way up the steps as quickly as she could and pushed the gingerbread doors open as hard as possible. And when they swung open, she screamed. The inside was not made of candy and gingerbread, but was rather just an old church in a dangerous state of decay. Out of every crack and crevice seeped a caustic black fluid that flowed as slowly as molasses in January. It crept upward along surfaces against gravity, with great gelatinous blobs of the substance budding off and slowly rising upwards like wax in a lava lamp. It all collected upon the ceiling where it formed into a mosaic of gauntly skeletal faces. Jaws all held agape in silent screams to reveal multiple rows of rotten and malformed teeth. Their misplaced and supernumerary eyes and nostrils were nothing but abysmally cavernous voids. Their hydrocephalic craniums all bulging near to the point of bursting. 34, Mississippi. Oh, and do be careful of the black bile, James warned. It's a manifestation of the Eldritch rascal that gives us our power. We have to expunge it from our bodies from time to time so we don't end up like our Uncle Larry. We keep it on this floor because it's like the cold. 35 Mississippi. Tempting as it was to give up and just let James beat her to death with his candy cane, Opal forced herself to step into the bile-infested chapel. She could hear the faces in the ceiling breathing laboriously and out of sync with one another, but they didn't seem to react to her presence. The free-floating bile on the floor and in the air showed no change either 
She ran up a short stairway to the mezzanine, and then up the spiral staircase of the belfry. The staircase twisted around and around and climbed higher and higher, far higher than should have been possible. The higher she went, the more abundant the black bile became. She couldn't avoid stepping in it, and it clung to her feet and slowed her descent. She couldn't avoid touching it, and she felt a dull, slow burn gnawing away at every inch of contaminated skin. She swatted the airborne biobes away as best as she could, but some were so small, she was sure she hadn't avoided inhaling them. She climbed for what felt like hundreds of steps, and peering down over the railing only confirmed that the tower was far taller now than it had been when she started. She embraced herself up against the railing and began to weep, only moving again once she heard the sound of encroaching footsteps coming from below. Eventually, she reached the top of what she feared might be an infinite staircase and emerged out into the belfry. The tower now rose many stories above the ground, and she had no difficulty spotting the apartment building she had fled from in the distance. But that was all she could see. Other than that building, the Christmas village, and the road between them, there was nothing but endless miles of pristinely white snow. Even if she somehow evaded James and his sister, and the black bile, and whatever monstrosities inhabited this strange and nightmarish other world, there was no escape. If her death was unavoidable, she thought it would be better to jump but deny James the satisfaction of the kill. Still, it wasn't an easy thing to do. She hesitated, and that hesitation cost her the only chance she had in the matter. Sixty. Mississippi. She reflexively spun around to see that James had silently caught up to her. Before she could react, he struck her across the face with his cane, delivering enough force to knock her over the belfry's railing. She plummeted down towards the hard, icy ground, and this time there was nothing to break her fall. Back in the penthouse of their residence, James stood at the window smoking a cigarette as he admired his latest trophy. Morning, James, darling, Mary yawned as she made her morning beeline from their bedroom to their bar. As always, she was none the worse for wear after her consumption of a normally fatal amount of alcohol and ready for more. Are you all right with eggnog eye-openers for our morning cocktails? After last night, I'm still very much in the Christmas spirit, Mary darling, he agreed. Mm-hmm. Sorry I passed out early. If I had paced myself with that hot toddy, I could have stayed up a bit longer. I don't know what came over me. I'm usually Mrs. Self-Control. She laughed as she took a swig from the liquor bottle before mixing the drinks. So, after you put me to bed, you went running 
out after our last victim, right? I thought we were just going to let the cold finish her off. I got an idea for what I wanted to do with the body, and I didn't want her losing any digits to frostbite before I could get to her, James explained. Hmm, you know, if I were the jealous type, which I am, I might be a bit miffed that you went chasing after some stray harlot on your own. She reprimanded him. What exactly did you get up to last night? Come see for yourself, James invited, waving her over to the window. With her cocktails in hand, Mary sauntered over to her brother's side and peered out the window with cautious optimism. Outside, James had contracted the road so that the Christmas village was easily seen from their penthouse, and on the top of the fountain stood Opal, encased in ice. He had poised her as a figure skater, standing on one leg with her arms outstretched for balance, her frozen corpse reduced to a garden decoration to spruce up her killer's estate. James, darling, I love it, Mary swooned. She's the perfect centerpiece for the Christmas village, and I can't imagine a more fitting fate. We told her it was cold outside, but she didn't listen. If only she known the exit to the playroom is out the front lobby. Merry Christmas, Mary darling, James wished, taking his cocktail in one hand and putting the other around her waist. Merry Christmas, James, darling, Mary wished, kissing him fondly before taking her first sip of eggnog. And this concludes tonight's Christmas Horror Stories. As you slumber, please enjoy another hour of crackling fire. Merry Christmas to all. And to all a good night. I look forward to reading to you later. Sleep tight.
Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply.